Hi Subterraneans listeners, I hope you've been digging the season so far, it's been a blast to write. Before we get to the episode, a quick programming note, due to my poor planning, episode 5 is due to drop on Boxing Day, which means there's a high chance it gets delayed by a week or so, because it's very important I spend as much time as possible unconscious over the winter bank holidays. If you want to keep up to date with Subterraneans news, follow me on Twitter at Subterpod or, as always, Subscribe to me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Also, a quick content note for today's show. This episode talks in some detail about sex and sexuality, and there's a little more cussing than usual. Kids shouldn't be listening to this show anyway, but extra much this one. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Christian churches, architecturally, lend themselves to formalist criticism. The design of a church has certain rules to it, certain functions which need to be fulfilled. There needs to be enough seating for the congregation, there needs to be a pulpit, there needs to be somewhere for the choir to stand, and the acoustics need to lend themselves to the big, echoey sound of hymns. Then there's the tower, from which the weekly call to prayer is issued by the pealing of church bells. These are the basic rules of what most would recognise as a standard parish church, around which architects can iterate and experiment. The 51 Christopher Wren churches built after the Great Fire of London in 1666 are a great example of this type of serialised formalism. While they all obey the same basic design principles, each has its own little alterations or specificities designed to make them stand out from each other. While many of these churches have been destroyed over the years, fire, blitz, or redevelopment being the primary culprits, 13 still remain as originally designed, and a further 11 remain in altered forms around the city. I could write a whole series on each of these churches, but I'm interested in one specific detail, which appears across all of them. In every Christopher Wren church, there's a hidden space beneath the choir, that is, the architectural feature known as the choir, not the people themselves. Nobody's quite sure what the purpose of these rooms is, and they vary in size from small cupboards to full-size vaulted rooms. The one thing they are sure of, though, is that you must never, ever open them during a service. At least, not without knowing exactly what you're getting into. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. Certain church seats, especially in the choir section, will have elaborate carvings on the underside, and are designed to turn upwards, like contemporary cinema seating. These carvings are accompanied by a small wooden lip, upon which people can perch during long periods of standing, required as part of many Christian church services. 
This structure is known as a misery cord. Misery cords are not actually that common in London, since they're more associated with older medieval churches. Those that have survived to this day have been through all the back and forths of the intra-Christian struggles of the past thousand years. They're fascinating to look at, though, because many of them are designed in ways which are, at best, a little sacrilegious. There are carvings of people drinking and gambling, crude caricatures of famous disciplinarian abbots, and, in one case, a surprisingly detailed relief of a man bent double, his face grinning cheekily between his legs, spreading his butt cheeks open for the viewer to gaze straight up his asshole. You just don't get religious art like that these days, you know? The wicked and the profane aside, there are also a surprising amount of pagan themes on display in misery chords across Europe. There are scenes of harvest festivals and tree goddesses, mischievous little imps and gnomes sitting on toadstools. They're fascinating to look at now, because they're the final surviving relic of what we can only assume was a little act of rebellion. They disrespect the church on two different levels, both by providing physical comfort to those supposed to be locked in upright penitence, and by sneaking a reverent folk religion into the sombre Christian churches of medieval Europe. I bring up misery chords not only because they're extremely cool, although that is a major motivation because they are extremely cool, but also because the idea of architecture which takes into account the suffering inherent in worship is fascinating to me. The simple solution for those who aren't able to comfortably stand for long periods would be to allow them to sit down, after all, but instead we have this strange little stopgap measure, snubbing its nose at convention, surviving for hundreds of years under the seats in the holiest of sanctuaries. It seems to me that humanity, at its most self-serious, is always inches away from humanity at its most comic. Christopher Wren's London churches are the subject of a lot of romance. I remember my grandma had a painting of the London skyline from the 1800s in her living room, which showed how a low-rise London used to be. The skyline was entirely dominated back then by the church towers sticking out above the regular buildings. And the easiest way to navigate for a new visitor was from church to church, since you could usually pick them out in the middle distance as you walked. She always said that the London skyline was ruined by overdevelopment in the 60s and 70s. A lot of contemporary architects considered the construction of Centre Point above Tottenham Court Road Tube Station the death knell for the traditional cityscape. A quick aside about Centre Point, since I don't know that I'll get to do a full episode about it. It was built on the former site of a gallows in the early 60s, but sat mostly empty until January 1974, when two housing campaigners occupied the building over a long weekend in protest at the housing crisis at the time in London. They got in by getting jobs as guards with the private security company who were overseeing the huge empty monolith. After they left, it remained mostly empty until 1980, at which point it was occupied by the Confederation of British Industry for the next 33 years. The CBI is, as the name would suggest, a capitalist lobbying group who go to great pains to stress that they are a non-partisan research network with lots of talk about diversity and inclusion on their website, despite being run by a revolving door of ex-McKinsey consultants and Conservative Party policy advisors. 
A couple of other businesses had offices in the building after refurbishment in 2005. EA Games, Saudi Arabia's state oil company Aramco, PetroChina, until it was converted to multi-million pound luxury flats in 2015. Centerpoint, as a building, has a reputation for being ugly, but architecturally, I don't think it's that bad. It's one of those aggressive modernist piles, sheer concrete and repeating patterns designed to overwhelm the eye. There's definitely something to it which is appealing to me, visually speaking. What the building really stands for, though, is the surprisingly consistent face of dark money in London from the 60s onwards. In the same way that the luxurious offices were left empty while the unhoused froze to death outside in the 60s and 70s, now most of the luxurious flats in the building remain unsold or empty, serving their purpose better as investment vehicles on the cartoonishly inflated London property market than as actual homes for human beings to live in. Same shit, different day. Anyway, I got off track a little. I remember my experience of walking through London, a little drunk, when I first got work up here, gazing starstruck at the tall buildings, feeling honestly just so lucky to live in such a beautiful place. I know that's corny, I know that makes me sound like a tourist, but it's how I feel. I'm romantic about cities in my heart of hearts. I fall in love easily, and I feel blessed to be a part of them, even though the fundamental experience of living in a city is that Basically, everything is trying to kill you at all times. There are times when that's more literally the case, however. Christopher Wren lived through the English Civil Wars, a series of complex political and theological disputes which boiled over into a conflict between Parliament and the monarchy throughout the 1600s. As a deeply confusing period of struggle which seems, in retrospect, to be as much about interpersonal factional bickering as it is about ideology, it feels pretty relevant to any analysis of the past five years of UK politics. It also had incredibly long-lasting effects. The UK Parliament took power over the country, executed King Charles I, ruled for around 11 years, and then brought the monarchy back, albeit in a greatly reduced role. Much like recent UK political history, the Civil War is frustrating to study as a Marxist, because it's just missed opportunity on top of missed opportunity. It's a classic bourgeois revolution, in which the interests of the working people weren't really relevant to the choices being made by those in power, which meant that every ounce of positive change went hand in hand with a pound of extra suffering. The violence inflicted against Ireland in this period, in particular, echoes to this day, the country experienced a catastrophic population drop of around 41%, with around 600,000 people, mostly Catholics, killed by war, famine or disease, and another 40,000 people left or were exiled. The upshot, despite all that suffering, was not so much a revolution as a change in management, and is perhaps best understood as the death rattle of feudal monarchism as England turned entirely to modern imperial capitalism. The persecution of Catholic monks and priests had been happening on and off since the Reformation began in 1529 under Henry VIII. The Roman Catholic Church, as an organisation, 
was functionally illegal in England until 1829, marking 300 years of formally legislated anti-Catholic repression. It's honestly difficult to write about in any type of summary way, as I've attempted to briefly do here, because the whole period from the Reformation onwards was such a whiplash back and forth of religious and political strife, even during the relatively stable years of Elizabeth I. It's just a complete mess. Churches being seized and converted between religious orders multiple times in a matter of years, preachers being imprisoned, hanged, and then pardoned afterwards, martyrs on all sides, priests and monks hiding in cupboards, all that sort of stuff. That final point leads to one of the other fascinating architectural features from the period. Priest holes. Many of these were built before the Civil War, during the Reformation, when the first wave of anti-Catholic persecution swept across the country. Religious orders were outlawed, meaning Catholic monks and priests were abruptly thrown from their homes and forced to convert or go into hiding, and gangs of priest hunters began searching for these religious fugitives. In more rural locations, mass rocks would be set up as improvised altars in secluded spots, sometimes making use of stonework from a ruined church, but in cities, this wasn't an option. People who chose to shelter priests knew that the penalty for getting caught was extreme. Imprisonment, torture, or death. And would be made even worse if they were found to be conducting Catholic mass within their houses. They would set up improvised churches in bedrooms or basements and hold services in secret, ready to scoop everything up and hide it away at a moment's notice. A priest hole is a hidden compartment, cupboard, or other such hiding place built into the fabric of an existing structure to shelter a fugitive priest or to hide church materials when the priest hunters came knocking. These were often so well disguised that many have been forgotten and are only rediscovered during renovation works on historic buildings. Most were built between 1550 and 1605, hidden in fireplaces, staircases and attics, and there were all kinds of ingenious tricks used to keep them safe. Some were double-layered, with a much more obvious hiding place in front and a better disguised hidden second layer, designed to throw investigators off the scent when they discovered the first one empty. Priest holes could be anywhere from the size of a cupboard to a whole hidden basement church. Harvington Hall in Worcestershire has at least seven priest holes built into the structure of the house, and they're known to have been used to shelter priests throughout this period. Going back to where I started the show, Christopher Wren's churches all contain hidden compartments and rooms tucked away beneath the choir. They're hard to get to from within the church, and even if you know the location, they're often sealed beneath heavy stones with keyholes hidden in the intricate wood carvings of the sanctuary. Most also have locks on the inside, allowing someone to seal themselves in in a way which would take heavy construction equipment to remove. Perhaps these hidden rooms were intended as priest holes originally, included in the design of these Anglican churches out of an abundance of caution, given the turbulent atmosphere within England when they were built. Although they vary in size, they're all large enough to accommodate two to three people at a minimum. Priest hunters were still active in England at the time, 
though not nearly at the rates they had been during the Reformation, and the lingering threat of religious persecution certainly seemed to occupy Wren's mind during the design process. He was born to a family with strong ties to the Royalists, who were the losing side in the Civil War, and although they mostly escaped consequences, it certainly could have inspired a panic room approach to architecture. I can't claim to see inside the mind of Christopher Wren, but biographical details and political context all add up to suggest paranoia about the sanctuary wasn't an irrational response. What I can talk about, however, is what those rooms have actually been used for in the intervening 400 years. If you've read the Canterbury Tales, or are familiar with Chaucer more generally, you'll know that the church has always had a pretty tawdry reputation in English literature. Chaucer was writing at a time of religious upheaval in the late 1300s, when the church was seen to be taking too much interest in, and profit from, worldly matters. They owned vast amounts of land and exploited the peasant workers who were reliant on it to survive, and still practiced the sale of indulgences, whereby ordinary people would be encouraged to pay the church directly to be forgiven for sins. Ironically, this practice allowed you to prepay if you had enough money, giving you credit ahead of time if you were planning a big weekend. And it was also used to extort money from honest people after confessional. Those who were involved in selling indulgences were known as pardoners, and those responsible for bounty hunting those in the eye of church justice were known as summoners. Both professions feature in the Canterbury Tales as storytellers and the subjects of stories themselves. Even besides petty corruption and extortion, the church's moral character was, to say the least, heavily in question. Chaucer speaks of the monk who travels with them as follows. Please excuse my mangled attempt at Middle English pronunciation. For by my father's soul, as to my doom, thou art a master when thou art at home. No poor cloisterer, nay no novice, but a governor, wily and wis. And therewithal of brawness and of bonus, a well-faring person for the nonis. I pray to God, give him confusion, that first ye brockte on to religion. Thou wouldest han been a tredefalaricht, hadst thou as great a lever as thou hast micked. To perform all thy lust in engender, thou hadst begotten full many a creature. In case you missed that, somehow, despite my truly excellent reading. Chaucer is there saying that the monk is a huge, burly, attractive guy who, if he hadn't been religious, would be a treadfowl. Literally, a chicken fucker. Although it really just means promiscuous and sexually potent man, who would have had many, many children. It's heavily implied by the text that religion actually hasn't kept this monk in particular from chicken fuckery at all, and that he's just as horny and raucous as the rest of the pilgrims. This characterization is, of course, part of a much broader satire of the church and its practices, but the basic idea of a libertine monk is a known trope in writing from this period, suggesting that it wasn't exactly unknown in real life either. 
This reputation persisted well into Shakespeare's time. Hamlet's exclamation to Ophelia, get thee to a nunnery, go, farewell, was an intentional double entendre on nunneries being an informal name for brothels, but also on the reputation of both Anglican and Catholic convents for being houses of ill repute, where everyone was, not to put too fine a point on it, shagging like crazy. Little language note here, although in modern English the word convent is associated with nuns, historically it was used interchangeably for Christian religious orders of all genders, and that's how I'm using it here. Anyway, membership at a convent was the final destination for a lot of wealthy and middle-class youths whose sexuality was threatening or scary to their family's reputation. Despite the Anglican Church overturning the need for celibacy among the religious orders in 1549, the English public still saw the respectability of a God-fearing life as a cold shower against the baser urges. It turns out, though, that when you lock up a bunch of people who are, for whatever reason, considered too promiscuous for regular society, they don't suddenly stop being promiscuous. There are plenty of bawdy stories and crude illustrations from this period onwards of nuns and priests hooking up, plenty of tales of junior clergy getting caught inside brothels or each other. I'm making it sound more fun than it was, of course. There were horrible consequences for those who were caught in the act. And these convents could be brutal, sadistic places. That said, it's important not to buy into the Christian church's own myth-making, about the scholarly pursuit of holy knowledge as a panacea against impure, earthly thoughts. The realms of the holy and the horny are not necessarily in conflict, do not necessarily intersect at all, and engagement with one does not preclude engagement in the other. People can walk and chew gum at the same time. They can read their Bible and fuck. We're complex creatures like that. Christopher Wren and William Shakespeare weren't contemporaries. Shakespeare died in 1616, 16 years before Wren was born in 1632. Sorry, that's a lot of 16s. But they were working in a similar enough context that Wren would have known about the church's less than savoury reputation. It sure hadn't died down by the time he was rebuilding London, despite the huge amount of religious turmoil and repression which went along with the civil wars and it continued once the need for priest holes and panic rooms had subsided entirely. So, again, what did people do with Wren's hidden compartments for the intervening 400 years of London history? I'll tell you what people did with them. They had sex in them. Well, not all of them, not all the time. A fair number of them are just used for boring old storage. That said, at least half a dozen of Wren's panic rooms have hidden external entrances, presumably intended originally as escape routes for fleeing priests. Some have bathrooms and tasteful lighting, and they're approaching soundproof. They're famous as cottaging locations and quiet spots for sex workers to use, right under the nose of the religious authorities. Lingering in the churchyard during a sermon was just one of the many coded ways to indicate you were looking for discreet encounters, and some churchyards even had famous graves that you could perch on to flag your desire for a particular kink or special interest. 
Imagine, if you will, a dozen men outside Christchurch Greyfriars during morning communion, awkwardly leaning against the grave of Anastasia Dunlow, 1702-1746, waiting for someone, anyone, to stand near the grave of Bishop Martin James, 1690-1739. This practice continued for hundreds of years, despite the church's various attempts to curtail it. Locks are broken, doors are kicked in, or, failing that, sometimes people just start going at it right there in the graveyard. As with any public sex environment, it usually comes down to who's actually managing it at the time, and there have been plenty of clergymen over the years who have elected to turn a blind eye, or even, sometimes, become active participants. I could, now, go into the long history of sex work and gay cruising and its repression by the British state, but I trust that if you've listened this long, you're aware of all that, or at least able to look into it by yourself. It's a dark and violent history, as much entangled with the mores of the Christian church as it is with the British imperial project more broadly. There's a horror that bubbles underneath this story. Repression, violence, and persecution underpins these encounters. People on the margins searching for connection in an impossible world. If it's alright with you all, though, I'd much rather end this episode on a positive note. There's something really heartening to me about the little act of resistance that comes with this sort of fetishistic profanation of the sanctuary. The desire to not just do it, but to really rub it in everyone's faces is, honestly, incredibly cool and inspiring to me. Ren's panic room mindset accidentally created a community space for people who really needed it, a relief from mandatory suffering, out of the cold and the rain. These spaces are the misery cord of the people, the moment of comfort in the eye of the storm. May they, and the people who have chicken-fucked their way through them over the years, live forever in our hearts. Or, at least, in something like our hearts. episode of Subterraneans, The Estuary and the Nightmare Downstream. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app since it really helps getting my name out there. You can also subscribe on Patreon where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes info from £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran and Alex, who are probably looking forward to me never saying chicken fucker again on this podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>